Welcome to the Enterprise Excellence Podcast, where our purpose is to help create a better future. Learn from our world's experts how to improve your organization sustainably. Learn how to achieve and sustain an excellence journey for yourself, others, and the planet. And I'm your host, Brad Jevons, coming to you from Brisbane, Australia. We are proudly brought to you in association with SA Partners, a world-leading business transformation consultancy. SA Partners are a truly purposeful company focused on helping organisations achieve sustainable improvement for themselves, others, and the planet. Welcome to episode 40 of the Enterprise Excellence Podcast. It is such a pleasure to have on the show today, Dr. James Copeland. James is a writer, lecturer, and researcher in the field of computer science. He is known for his work on patents and software program design. James, together with Jeff Sutherland, published the book titled A Scrum Book, The Spirit of the Game. This book outlines many of the key patterns of success in achieving high-performance teams. Let's get into the episode. James, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure, James. This is an honor to have you on the show. Um, James, I'm really keen, myself and for the listeners, to know some of your backstory. Like You've had such an amazing career, but where did it start and how did it evolve? Okay. Um... I guess, as Steve Martin would say, I was born as a, a, a poor black child. But uh, <laughs> one small correction to start with, by the way, the a scrum book has eighteen other authors, but you can uh, you can look at that, and oh. we're all we're all co-authors. Um, there's a long story with the publisher. I won't go into that. I started as a uh, an electrical engineer in training, and then went on to a uh, an undergraduate degree in computer science, and in my much later years, got a got a PhD. Um, and in a doctorate, um, I started, you know, being very technology focused. I loved to tinker with electronics as a kid and, uh, actually built some simple computers, um, at home before, before I actually (laughs) used a real one. Wow. Um, and went to college and started to work at Bell Laboratories and loved the technology there and, uh, enjoyed enjoyed the work um did what i felt and what i feel now are some pretty amazing things and it was several years later that a friend of mine uh moody ahmad said you know it really is all about people this technology stuff you know we know how to solve and that's what got me into the the human side of things i still keep my fingers in technology i might have been working with on object-oriented programming real object-oriented programming which very few people I think understand anymore. Yeah. Um, but my passion and most of my work is in fact more on the human side and working with organizations and uh, um, looking at development processes, organizational structure. Um, probably, you know, Scrum is one of the major brands that are rally around. <clears throat> I've worked a lot with, uh, with Jeff, Jeff Sutherland uh, in the early days and uh I'm still still part of the Scrum community. James, what triggered you to look at the behavioral side? Because I, I've had um, people like Peter Hines and Jeff Liker on here from that lean background, and they also are heavily on that behavior side. What what triggered you to start going down that path of human behavior for high performance within organizations? Well, it was just so clear that that's where the problems are. Uh, that the uh, the problems. I mean, uh, first of all, the the first whipping boy was management. And, uh, and then you, you look deeper and I mean, managers are doing their best too. They get, they get a bad rap, 
But if I look at the dysfunction in organizations, um, it was usually a people issue. I had a great boss, uh, Steve Bauman, who said, and I was working at Bell Laboratories. He said, there has never been a technical problem that Bell Laboratories has been unable to solve. That's a pretty darn powerful statement. And he's approximately right. I mean, all the problems were people problems. So I thought, okay. Um, and I'm an extrovert. I like working with people. Um, I love learning. And you, you learn by interacting with people. So I thought, okay, this, this is going to be fun. And when I got into Bell Labs research, which was about 1990, I started actually studying development process because you know, AT&T was trying to break into the European market with the ISO 9000 trade barrier, and uh, they needed ISO compliance. So they came to research and said, we want your help. So I said, oh, okay. So they had these ISO 9000 documents. And... Uh, and I said, okay, well, I went to the process weenies and I said, I'll go in and I'll study your organizations and uh, I'll make role activity diagrams of what they do. And then we'll, you make role activity diagrams from your ISO 9000 documentation. We'll compare them. No correlation. So, of course, I was never allowed to publish this because, you know, it would have upset the ISO apple cart. And I thought, well, if, if processes are not the right thing to study, what are the right things? And there was a guy in our department named Steve Ike at the time who was visualizing structures of, of massive systems. I thought, okay, well, it's about relationships. And so I started making, well, what I, what I did is I invented this thing called social network theory, which unfortunately a guy named Moreno had already invented 20 years before my birth. Ah. Um, and so he took away my invention. Um, but, uh, and then we started noticing, if you look at the pictures of these social networks, there are certain configurations that arise again and again in sick organizations, like highly, highly centralized control by managers, or disconnected roles, or time serial sequences. And there are patterns that, that recur in successful organizations. And notably, the, the pattern that recurred in successful organizations is what I called the mess pattern. It had no recognizable structure. Wow. So, okay, we started looking at these organizational patterns and documenting them. And I worked with a guy named Neil Harrison. And, uh, and then later, you know, these, I was doing a lot of organizational studies, empirical studies. We, we empirically studied probably between one and 200 organizations over the course of 10 years wow. to find out what made them work. And we found this one organization that was fantastically effective. And one of the things that made them effective, there were only 12 people, four developers. And every morning, the developers would get together and say, what, what did we do yesterday? What are we going to do today? And what, what impediments are in our way? And I published a little paper on that. And it was picked up by a guy named Jeff Sutherland. Yeah. So that's where the Daily Scrum comes from. Yeah, no. And uh, also some, some elements of the Scrum Master. Jeff and I wouldn't meet until like 2000 or 2001. And then later, of course, I'd learn about the work of Takeuchi and Nanaka. And finally, I met Nanaka-sensei. Yeah. This notion that I was noticing as a mess pattern. Well, he had noticed it too. He had studied companies in Japan, and he noticed that the most innovative companies were those where you didn't have a process 
with analysis to design requirements and so forth. But everybody was doing everything all the time. And it reminded him, he said, if this were a, a Gantt chart or a print chart, everything, all the tasks would be overlapping and reminded him of sashimi on a bowl of rice, overlapping pieces of fish, like overlapping tasks on a print chart. And he thought, what's the human equivalent of sashimi? And he thought, well, it's, it's, it's people overlapping each other, like people with their arms around each other's shoulders, like a scrum in rugby. And that's where the word scrum comes from. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, they were bringing the New Zealand rugby team into fame even before they were known mostly around the world through the IT world. <laughs> it's, it's amazing background with it, James. And so did the, the work from Nanaka and Takuchi, did it really start to pull some things together for you too? Did it add to the body of work that you were already doing? I think slowly over time, it grew on me and I'm found, you know, I'm finding ever more strong parallels between what, uh, especially what Nanaka Sensei has has found. Because I mean, I have a, the closer relationship to him. I've never met Taki, Takeuchi San, um, and I have been going to Japan um, actually originally on an object oriented ticket long before patterns, and then and then Scrum. So I already was being immersed in Japanese culture and was always interested in the, uh, especially the Chinese classics. Um, so all these things kind of came together into an integrated worldview um, where I, I really no longer am looking at the parts, you know, to, that Nanaka says this and Sutherland says this and Lao Tse says this, but it's, it is a, a whole system that's, that's wonderfully beautiful and consistent. Another guy had that same feeling for how the world works. And he says, this is what drives us when we build buildings. And his name was Christopher Alexander. And he wrote a book called A Pattern Language and another one called The Timeless Way of Building. So this has become another part of the language and formalism that I use to describe and convey how one approaches um, the development of a complex system, something like a development organization. Yeah. And James, is that where the, the word patterns came from? Was that that patterns in architecture and elements like that? Is that where you, you chose that word from? Or was it a word where you're already thinking, now what I'm seeing is patterns of human behavior in these high-performance organizations? No, I think originally the word probably came from our earlier work with software patterns. So initially I was looking at uh, patterns in architecture and software architecture for object-oriented programming. Yeah, and I'm I'm one of the founders of the Hillside Group, which which launched the the patterns in the the software discipline, and then, well, even by then I was starting to look at the the human issues more than the technical issues. And in fact, the first pattern I wrote was a terrible, terrible, terribly named pattern called Buffalo Mountain, yeah. which probably probably has the the award for the worst named pattern ever. Um, but it was a, an organizational pattern. Yeah. But it used the same form and systems thinking um, in terms of you know, how the complex systems work and what is emergent behavior that Alexander was seeing in architecture and that we had been seeing in object-oriented programming. Now, the term, I mean, the term pattern had existed in architecture long before Alexander. They talk about languages of architecture. And in fact, um, biologists use the term for 
um, the configurations that, ar that arise from what's called spontaneous symmetry breaking, um, which is how patterns form from a, a more scientific the theoretical point of view. Yeah. So yeah, I, I picked it up from Alexander, but the term wasn't common use for the same thing that we talk about. Yeah. And I can see the logic of it because like your book, a scrum book, and also the online mod, like I re refer to the online system for it to all the patterns. It's just paramount to what I do whenever I help a client myself. I believe it's very much about the culture. It's about the behavior. And what you've got there is this book that has these most amazing patterns to look for and to understand where companies may be having challenges and then help build awareness and growth in there, even without a strong system, like you say. It's amazing what you've done, like the documentation of it. There are so many, like in this Scrum book, which I've got here beside me, we think we're talking, are we talking 190, 190 patterns? No, just 90, 94 patterns. 94. It's, it's amazing yeah. stuff. James, what are some of the key ones that you've seen, mate? Do you mind explaining some of the patterns or the one or two really key ones that you've seen successful so that our listeners can understand what these patterns are about? So what a pattern is, is it's, it's form. It's something you draw a picture of. And if people, people draw pictures of organizations on the chalkboard all the time. So there's really nothing earth-shaking um, about patterns in terms of being new. Um, but what we discover is that, that people, you know, when they go into Scrum, they go into Agile or just organizational development is they're, they're pulling inspiration from history like military hierarchy and ignore these patterns that we were born with. I mean, they, they, really, they really appeal to human instinct. So, I mean, probably, I mean, the pattern that I've been discovering again and again and again is central is swarming. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, the, the pattern was called single piece continuous flow. A better, a better name for it would be one by one production. <clears throat> and this, this has some confusion. Uh, everyone says, you know, Scrum came from the Toyota production system. Well, kind of. And this notion of single piece continuous flow really has to do with waterfall development, which is what Toyota does. And it's a series of assembly line uh, of cells on an assembly line, right? Yeah. yeah. But within a cell, the entire team does this sashimi thing, like Nanaka-sensei described, and that pattern is called swarming. So uh, that's where the term scrum came from, is the sashimi thing. So to me, swarming is the heart of scrum. Now, to do swarming, that is everybody doing everything all the time, you need another pattern, which is cross-functional team. So you can't have specialization. So yeah. someone needs to be able to look and say, oh, this work needs to be done and pick it up and do it. That that's what enables everyone to do everything all the time. Um, you also need a co-located team. So this, this pattern swarming to me is really at the heart and center of Scrum. Um, yeah. If you're swarming, you need a plan. For, for what you're doing during the day. And that's, that's daily scrum, which one of the reasons for these patterns, by the way, I mean, and some of them, you know, communicate these really, really deep laws of nature, like swarming. But some of them are just because, you know, collectively as an industry, we're, we're pretty stupid and, and, and teams are pretty stupid. 
So people think the Daily Scrum is a reporting meeting with an agenda. I mean, I can go on the web and you can you can get these hints. Here's how here's the agenda for a Daily Scrum. And it's like, oh my gosh. Or you look at job descriptions, and we're gonna hire a scrum master, and then there's this project manager description, right? Yeah. Um so no, the daily scrum is as you know, a planning meeting. It's a small extension of the of sprint planning that you do day by day to accommodate what you've learned from urgent requirements. It's not a status reporting meeting. There's not an agenda. The scrum master is not there. The product owner is probably not there, though with the new scrum guide, that's a little bit ambiguous. Um, and what we wanted to do was draw a line in the sand, put a stake in the ground, whatever metaphor you want to use, to say, this is what Scrum aspires to be. So Jeff of course, worked with us on this book. And again, I mean, it's, I really need to acknowledge the all 20 authors who, who fit into this. And I was afraid because of things like the Scrum Guide, which was, you know, had all the signs of, of perhaps bending to commercial in, in, interests and which has always been ambiguous, inconsistent, um, vague. We needed a better a better document. And so I thought we better get started. And that's what this a scrum book is. Well, I, I love it, James, because I think any company could take a scrum book and read through and study these patterns and <clears throat> then look at their own ecosystem, their own culture, their own approach and start to evolve into any of these patterns where they got gaps. To me, it's, it's virtually like a, a maturity index based on culture where you could do a gap analysis based on it and go, right, well, here's where we need to start. Let's start here and work through these patterns and evolve and keep improving. Am I on course or off course in your view? Well, we talk about chu, ha, and ri a lot in uh, Scrum, right? Yeah. And we'll pretend that your audience know what those, what those mean. Um, though I practice Aikido, the terms really come from Aikido. And in fact, most people don't know what they mean. But let's pretend. Okay. So yours is a good chu view. So you're right. I mean, you can take the patterns and if you're, if you're at the beginning and you're, and you're not competent, the patterns will take you from incompetence to competence. Yeah. But Alexander says something interesting in his book with his using patterns to build, you know, uh, towns and neighborhoods and buildings and, and so forth. He says, if you ignore these patterns and you just uh, put things together according to the the constructs of your of your culture and uh, and ignore these patterns, you will fail. But if you faithfully follow these patterns and use them together with other people to follow them and build a a city and a town and neighborhood and building, you will fail. Patterns aren't for building buildings. Patterns are to build you. They're to put you in touch with the insight you were born with so that you can follow your instinct. So the patterns exist to train your instinct and to forget all that crap that you learned at Cardiff University and that you learned in your, your scrum of scale training and yeah. that you learned from all these books. I mean, all that stuff is so far from what we are as human beings. And so, you know, we need as, as developers to be looking more at psychology and sociology. And really, a scrum book 
is a Trojan horse that is a book on the sociology of development. There's nothing technical in it. Yeah. There's really nothing in it about software. It's about people. Yeah. You may and be the happy. research. Yeah. The research is grounded in sociological research, psychological research. Um, so, I mean, we had uh, one of my favorite folks is Lachlan Haysman. You must, you must know Lachlan, um, who has a, a great background in, in, in human behavior, looking at, at, you know, how do people interact in the workplace and how do we manage this? So that's really what that book is. So it's not about how to do Scrum. It's how to be a whole human being as part of a, an, a culture that wants to do great things. And hey, you do that, they'll figure it out. Yeah. And the way they're written too, James, in that way, you know, it brings in a lot of the theories and it talks very generalist, but it talks about the humanistic element heavily. It's not like every pattern there is written prescriptive to this is a system of the organization. Yep. Yeah, it's great. So James, with it, I think it's there's so much to gain from that. And to me, it, it comes back so much to that human side. And I really value what you've created there with that book. James, we were talking earlier too about organizations and organizations applying these patterns as they start to get larger. You know, so I guess an organization may, well, a team in an organization may form up and start to really implement these patterns and start to achieve great things. And then that organization wants to take that further. They want to make it larger through the organization. You were talking to me about a hub approach to that. Do you mind explaining that concept and in detail? And we'll explore that a bit for our listeners. Well, let me let me first of all set context so people don't go off crazy with this. You're, you're a consultant, right? You go out and you talk with clients. And yeah. So have you gone into a large client? Um, I mean, large by meaning, you know, like like 50 people or 100 people or whatever. And, and found that while things are really working well, that people are really contributing well and everything fits together. And, uh, and when I add people, it correspondingly adds to the, uh, to the productivity of the organization. No, not, not no I mean, I have yet to see a, um, a single good study of a software organization that shows that scaling works. So Bolan Quattro Pro for Windows, most productive organization we've seen was 12 people, four of whom were developers. Skype was done by four people. Wow. And then the company grew to 2000 and it died. Yeah. Yeah. How much productivity and outcomes did it gain from the four people to the 2000 people? Well, now my guess is it lost a lot because every person you add detracts from the effectiveness of, of other people on the product for about 25% for, for six months. If you take a team and split it, let's say you have a team with a velocity of 100 and you split it in two. Usually the resulting teams each have a velocity of 30 for a total of 60, which means to get back to the original 100, you have to double the size just to break even. Yeah, wow. So we, we talk about Kaizen, and I mean, Jeff talks a lot about, you know, uh, orders of magnitude of improvement. Heck, I mean, if, if he's right, if we can get orders of magnitude of improvement, why in the heck would you scale? And the reasons are political, because managers like to say, mine is bigger than yours, and power comes 
from organizations. There, there's another, there really is a social reason, which is why do organizations scale? And I, you know, people ask me that question. I say, why does a dog lick its genitals? <laughs> it's because it can. They have the money to scale. And so they yeah. hire more people. So scaling is capitalism's way of meeting the goals of socialism. Yeah. Of taking all this money and evenly redistributing it across a lot of people. I mean, I have clients in Japan, they're very large, so hire people hand over fist, and the people don't know what they're doing. They have no job. Yeah. But they're getting a salary. And every scaled organization I've been in is like that. So I don't think that scaling is a good idea. Now, that said, scoping is important. So often, you know, the scrum people will say, okay, the whole world is these five developers and a product owner and a scrum master. Well, no, there's uh, who sweeps the floors, who runs a cafeteria, who locks up things at night. Management, in fact, does have a function. You see this in Japanese corporations, not in managing development, but in managing the corporation. So there's more than just the scrum team. And in some sense, there's a notion of scope there. And I use the word scope instead of scale. But you have five people on the on the development team or on the scrum team. Well, I can't say development team anymore. It's been taken out of the scrum guide. And, you know, how do they work together? So you have the same problem. You, you still have a large organization um, that has these parts. I also hate multi-site development. But sometimes it's necessary because you need someone in the country for localization or because they're close to the, the resources they need for, for manufacturing in a, uh, in a, more, a more physical environment. So for that reason, we still have issues of scale. Yeah. Kind of the management tradition is hierarchy. And you're a scrum of scale person. It's, it's a traditional Bismarck 19th century German hierarchy with command and control. Mm. And so let's let's take an organization of, you know, I mean, I, I go into large organizations with a few hundred people, let's say 600 people. So you're a person on a scrum team. And there's another person on another scrum team. How many communication links are there between you on the average? And you can't talk directly to them because then you're cutting management out of the loop and management will scream and say, I need to be in control here. And you know it's true, and I know it's true. We've been in, in companies like this. Yeah. And I think Scrum at scale, in fact, is set up to make sure those managers still have a place when they transition to Scrum. Okay, so how many, for seven, 700 or 600 people, it's about seven links, seven communication hops. Now, do you know small world theory? No, James, haven't come across it. Well, there, there's a theory that says if you pick any two people on earth, and they make a list of their relatives and who they know. And those people make a list of the relatives and who they know. You don't have to go very far. It's about three in each direction. Every two people on earth are connected by six connections or less. Yeah. Now, of course, you can't prove it. Um, but there are, there are some heuristics that show it's very likely true. So small world theory can do for 8 billion people. What Scrum at scale cannot do for 600 people. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah. Now, why does this work for 8 billion people? 
because it's not hierarchical. And so what we have is, is multiple hierarchies. And so any person is part of multiple hierarchies and the hierarchies will usually be focused on some concern like, okay, we have this uh, dependency between our teams. Really good example. When, when Scrum first started, we had this thing called the Scrum of Scrums. You know the Scrum of Scrums, right? Yes, yes. So what it was, was a Scrum Master from each team would get together with the Scrum Masters from the other teams after the daily Scrum. We found it didn't work because the Scrum Masters were process people. They weren't technical people. The problems were technical problems. All right. So we send a representative from each team who can represent the impediment. That sucked because at the scum of scrums, we found that there were two or three people who were interested in being there and the rest were bored out of their skulls. So then Jeff said, what a scrum of scrums is, is the ability of teams to self-organize, to come together, to deal with impediments between them. And this is still what scrum.org says. Then scrum of scale went back and turned the clock back 20 years and said, this is a hierarchy. Each one has a manager and a scrum master, and it's a hierarchy. And we're back to something that doesn't even rise to, to small world theory. So what a hobby is, it's like the new scrum of scrums or like the scrum.org scrum of scrums, but it doesn't have to be technical issues. It can be um, core competencies of the organization. Okay, we all need, you know, we, have, we should have a testing um, hub. Where do the testers come together to decide what conference we go to next? Or a chess hub where people who want to play chess just come together to play chess to, uh, to blow off steam. Or management hubs. And if you look at the Toyota production system, really good book to read is, is this book, Inside the Mind of Toyota O. My background is totally wiping this out. That's really wild. Who's it by, James? It's called, huh? That who's that one by? Inside. So this the... is by uh, Satoshi Satoshi Hino. I have an English translation. It's of course available in Japanese. There's a few English translations still around. Um, but I mean, the number of hierarchies, the hierarchies in Toyota management is unbelievable. So it's this unbelievable network. This mess process. Ooh, we're back to Nanaka-sensei again. And you destroy that with imposing a hierarchy like we find in all of the scaling frameworks today. So hubs are, again, a return to common sense, what people would do naturally in order to, to work in a large community. Um, you also look at the research on innovation by Steve Johnson, and he, notes, he notices that innovation tends to come from cities. And this is why cities spawn innovation. Well, part of it is that you have a lot of diversity. And I'm a big believer in diversity, having a lot of different perspectives on things. And part of it is because you break down hierarchy. The people just meet each other in the street. And you have these chance interactions. Um, yeah. Imposing a hierarchy um, destroys the... Well, I won't say it destroys it, but it sends the wrong message about how we're going to support chance interactions. Yeah. James, I, I can really understand you've got the frontline small teams where they're swarming and they're developing and doing the work they need to do. And this could be IT or it could be, you know, any industry, any industry. 
And then there's the right people from those teams are going to the meetings above to help coordinate and keep on track and maybe overcome some challenges. And it's that self-organization again, but at, you know, that level above to keep things on track and aligned. And like you said, it could be social gatherings or whatever's needed by that community. Jess, what, if and where does management come in? Early in the conversation, you mentioned management about there are people who need to manage the cleaning and manage things like other bits and pieces. But in that model that you're talking about, is there a part for a, a layer of management or not? Absolutely. Um, and let's see if I can remember. I usually talk about three roles that managers have. And I've learned a lot from the Japanese in terms of this. So we, we talk about Kaizen all the time. Kaizen just means to get better. But it has this cultural connotation of incremental improvement, and usually in the context of the product. So in Japanese cultures, in Japanese companies, you have executive management, and they really don't interfere with development. Okay, development manages itself. What they do is they run the, the corporation. So where do we get funding? What markets should we be moving into? What strategic alliances should we have with other companies? Um, where do we do branding? Um, what should be our marketing strategy? Um, should we start a new product? Should we kill a product? See, a product owner is not going to commit suicide. They're not going to kill their own product. They yeah. need someone above them. How many products do you think Google has killed in the past 10 years? Oh, I would not have an eye, a clue at all, James. I know they'd have a, I have a lot behind a very clean front end, but I wouldn't know. It, 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 it's something between 50 and 100. It's staggering. And this is what makes companies great is cutting the fat. You were talking about lean earlier. These are, these are projects that are not going to go anywhere. Management says, you know, cut the crap. We're going we're gonna to kill this. So one of the functions of management is to, is to manage the enterprise. A second one is they have, they're the big guns. They have the money. They have the power. And so if you look at solving a problem, of course, developers should, should be solving their own problems. If they can't, get the help of a scrum master and maybe you pull in some other scrum masters. And maybe they pull in a product owner. And if they can't solve it, you go to management. If there's something that's preventing us from getting something to the customer, this sprint, management has the big guns. And so they are there to serve the, the team. Um, yeah. SoftBank in Japan, big, big uh, telecom company. I mean, they have this too. And this, you know, they have the Metascrum, right? Um, which is one of Jeff's inventions. Um, wonderful concept. But I mean, the, the CEO is, well, can both be the product owner, the one who's accountable for ROI, or the scrum master, the one who serves the entire organization. And this is more or less how SoftBank works. So I think there's this realization that the goose that lays the golden eggs is the developers. And I mean, we want to do everything to serve the developers at their level. And so management has this, this servant function in serving them. On the other hand, developers aren't in a position to, to steer the big ship. Yeah. And so the same people who are doing that are steering the big ship and we still need that management function. What you don't need are middle managers and hierarchy. 
And you look at Japanese corporations, unfortunately, they still have this hierarchy because Japan is a very hierarchical culture. And lifetime employment. But I'm from but I'm from I'm from Denmark. And so first of all, we're small. We don't need to, to stuff things with managers to get lifetime employment. Companies are very flat. And management here is even not viewed as a real glory power job. Oh, you're just a manager, right? Um, and so this is not about filling out the hierarchy with control points and having a big governance system that's formalized for interaction between managers. The governments, the governance is emergent. And in terms of what we more or less know as the three roles, management is an exception and they have a lot of power, but in numbers, it's very, very, very lightweight. Yeah. So I really get James from the conversation, you know, at the front line of development, and I'm guessing at the front line of other teams, potentially, you've got self-organizing autonomous teams that swarm at the front line and maybe above to cover things that they need to coordinate. From a management point of view, you've got this strategic directional decision point on product development and other key things. But then aside from that, it's about servant leadership. How can we support the front line where value is getting created and things are happening? Yeah, good enough. It's it's not quite servant leadership. The relationship is a little more complex than that. But okay, good enough. It's a it's it's a step in the right direction of understanding. Yeah, it's that more like you're saying. It's more that we got to focus on where the value is created. We got to focus on helping these teams at the front line who are innovating and creating these outcomes for our future, but also then guiding and directing from what we see up in the helicopter above. I mean, if you look at Saikichi Toyota who founded Toyota, um, he made a, str- a strategic decision to export cars. So, so why? Why do you find all these cars in, in Australia and in, in, in the US and in Europe? It's because it subsidizes the price of building cars back in Japan and lowers the price that they can charge for Japanese people. So this is a strategic decision on the part of of the management of the company. Those are the kind of decisions. That's the kind of vision. That's the level of value that a manager is looking for. Mm. A product owner, like a chief engineer in Toyota, is looking at value from their product. Okay, how, how, how can we make this car perform well, get good gas mileage, and you know, I have sexy styling, all these wonderful things. And yeah, the manager is looking at value, but it's a value kind of in a different dimension. And yeah, it's it's leadership, but I mean, it isn't just servant leadership. I mean, they kill products. Yeah. Let's yeah. let's let's be frank here. Okay. Yeah. There's there's no voting here. Yeah, there's a strategic and the directional element there that's critical. Yeah. James, you know, with someone who is in a traditional hierarchical organization and they're struggling with keeping up, you know, they might have smaller, newer competitors clipping at their heels and moving really fast. And they're like, wow, we got to do something. What advice would you give them on where to start? I've come to the conclusion there's there's no good answer to that problem. Um, a good a good book that supports this answer is a book by uh, Svenge and Wiersma, the two Dutch guys. It's called Becoming a Learning Organization. It's a I think it's quite old now, 20 or 30 years, wonderful little green book. 
And they said, fundamentally, there are some organizations and some industries that are so woven into the fabric of culture that it's just hopeless to change them. Now, the examples they gave at the time were the uh, the post office, you know, the um, uh, government, things like that. Uh, now, what's interesting is even the post office has changed. Yeah. They have some economies of scope, and those serve society. The cost is very, very high, um, and that we get tremendous inefficiencies because they're, they're, they're dealing with, with throughput rather than latency. So right now, I mean, I live in Denmark. It takes about, about six weeks for me to get a letter from, from North America. Wow. Because six weeks, yeah. That's crazy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're dealing with throughput because they have this huge scale. Um, so, that, you know, they, they struggle to optimize latency. Now, I think it could work if you turned it loose to self-organization. I mean, Federal Express has figured this out. Now you pay for it. Yeah. But if there is value in lowering the latency, then that value is worth being paid for. And Federal Express and all these others have figured out there's a market for that. So if you're in a large legacy organization, I mean, if you're, if you're really a rebel, what you can do is you can insulate some group and build a skunk works off on the side and show that you can, you can take on the organization and rebuild what they've built with a small team then do that. Unfortunately, even if they do succeed, someone will find a reason to, to say this can't work. Um, they're missing this feature and therefore they're, they're, they're scum or whatever, and they'll discount them. So it's very, very difficult. I, um, I had a friend, Dennis DeBruyler. He taught me everything I knew. And I was in a big company. How, how many employees did AT&T have when I joined them on the 11th of June, 1979? Oh, I couldn't imagine it would be big. One million. Wow. Yeah. And again, it was designed for volume rather than latency. So it took six years to develop a new system, right? But I mean, these systems were huge and ultra-reliable, like three seconds of downtime a month. I mean, incredible quality, incredibly great products. But we're facing a new world with rapidly changing technology and the internet and IP coming along to support voice. And Dennis said, the best thing that AT&T could do is build garages up and down Naperville Road. Yeah. With the image of, you know, people starting garage shops like, uh, like Hewlett and Packard did, right? Yeah. Like and just, you know, turning people loose. Yeah. And just having people get out there and give them money and say, you know, go do something interesting. And with scaling, this is what I think these big companies should do that have all this money that they're using to grow development. Don't grow the existing development. Put the money into something else. Toyota figured this out a long time ago. If they build an assembly line for a car, they'll build about something between 300,000 and 600,000 cars. And then rather than putting money into improving that assembly line, they design a new car. Yeah. Okay. So don't grow the current organization. Build a new product. Yeah. 
and that's that's the chance you've got to do it in a smaller more swarming focused autonomous type of approach and start to really take that type of innovative way and get that speed but until then i think these large companies are going to drag down society until until we reach a tipping point and and they get buried yeah but you see one's and getting society sorry james you see one's getting buried all over the place at the moment but like it's it's common like i i think you could we could probably sit here and rattle off hundreds and thousands that are getting buried right now no i'm talking about gms now gm really like should it. be dead they should be dead but um, the us government bailed them out i mean yeah. toyota ate their lunch and so i'm talking about companies like that Really I'm talking big. about major changes. I'm talking about the U.S. Post Office. Yeah, I'm talking about huge, 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 huge enterprises that will radically change the fabric of society, and unfortunately, have so much inertia that it's impossible to to kill them, especially from the inside. So I think we just have to wait for society to take its course. I'm I'm rather a pessimist on this, unfortunately. Yeah. It's an interesting thought process, especially when you talk about scale of organization. James, the knowledge you've provided and the work you've done throughout your career is amazing. I've got one final question to ask all my guests, and that's what's been a recent insight, a recent learning that you've had that you didn't have before? Yeah, what's recent? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I get a lot of little things and and maybe slow hunches. I think there's a growing hunch about the importance of swarming in Scrum. This, this hub realization has always been there, but really has been a slow hunch that's been developing since my phone call with Jeff about, you know, two and a half years ago or however long it's been. Um, <laughs> I've, I've realized that Working remotely over Zoom is not is not nearly as bad as, as what I've been making it out to be. Of course, I yeah. still think we're all going to go back to co-located work once this is all over. But in fact, I've been enjoying doing some Zoom things. So a, uh, um, a very practical day-to-day learning. Yeah. Well, you and I wouldn't have been able to connect. Like you're, in, you're up in the north and I'm down in Brisbane, Australia. And, you know, this, this new world makes it easier to be able to communicate and share, which is amazing. Yes. James, I think the knowledge you've shared and what you've provided through everything and to this episode, I really appreciate it. It's given me some amazing insights and I think everything you've done will help us create a better future. What that future is going to be is going to be interesting to watch, like some of the conversation we've had. But just on behalf of the listeners and myself, thank you so much for all your knowledge and, and time today. No, and thank you too. I really, really appreciate this opportunity and uh, appreciate that, that you let me pull your chain a little bit. I'm sure your, your uh, constituency out there knows that you're a scrum of scale person that I've been pulling your chain. So, uh, so guys who are listening, respect Brad too. Listen to his <laughs> side of this. And guys, neither of us is in control. Agile means this is your show. 
So you're going to have to listen to the arguments and and do your own research and make your own decisions. But Take I thought care. I'd give you an alternative an alternative version of things here, and then Brad Brad can clean up after me afterwards. <laughs> no, James, I think I think there is I think our society there is not enough alternate views where people will sit and listen about that alternate view, and that's one thing that I'm a great believer in, and I cherish it. Like when you and I were talking leading to this show, and you were mentioning some alternate views and other angles i was like wow bring this on this is going to be amazing because if we if we can all challenge our minds every day we're constantly learning um james how how can people reach out to you if they want to ask questions or or connect with some of the work you're doing uh, i mean probably the easiest thing would be to connect with me on linkedin i think my email is pretty easy to find it's jcoplien at gmail uh, you can send me mail, connect with me on LinkedIn, find me on Twitter, whatever. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't hide, so pretty easy to get, get in touch with me. Yeah, well, thanks again, James. Really appreciate it. Thank you, too. Have a good day, Brad. You too. Bye. The two key takeaways for me from this episode were, one, patterns of high-performance teams are all about people, and they are a natural social phenomenon. Two, autonomous self-organization at the front line is key to success. James mentioned that the patterns of high-performance teams and organizations they have defined are people-based. They are natural patterns based on human traits and behaviors. James said the swarming pattern, small groups of differing skilled team members gathering regularly to plan, overcome challenges, and move forward towards their goals are key in this outcome. I've seen this pattern occur in a crisis within highly bureaucratic organizations crisis creates a collaboration and swarming approach. Unfortunately, when the crisis is over, people often go back to their silos and traditional practices. James provides a great tip around forming small pilot teams or even separate organizations of small teams focused on a new innovative approach and product. My second key takeaway, autonomy is part of human nature. We all want to be able to create, contribute and play a role in our future. Autonomous small frontline teams that have within them the skills and capability needed to create excellent outcomes for customers are naturally going to be highly agile and innovative. They are all close to the customer. They have the skills and capability to create and deliver excellent outcomes for customers within their small group. These teams are empowered, motivated, and can directly see the results of the work they do for their customers. Startup companies evolve from small autonomous frontline teams. Unfortunately, as many of these companies grow, they lose this culture. As James mentioned during the show, this does not have to be the case. Thanks again for your time and knowledge, James. Bye for now.